Mindfulness Mode 292. We are living, breathing human beings and we're all connected to each other by the very virtue that we live and breathe in the world. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome. This is Bruce Lankford, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach. So great to have you back. If you're new, welcome, welcome to the show. Hope you love it here. And if you do, please subscribe on whatever app you're listening to. And if you would leave a comment on the on the show notes, that would be amazing. Mindfulnessmode.com is where you can leave a, a comment and see all the show notes and links for the episode. Do you believe that as human beings, we are all connected here in the universe? Well, I truly believe that if you are into mindfulness, that this is a concept you are going to be investigating. And that's what we're doing today is talking with a fantastic guest who can take you further in your mindfulness journey. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Hey, Mindful Tribe, this is going to be a lot of fun today. We are talking about kindness, and we're talking about kindness with what I call the kindness expert, Tara Cousineau. So this is going to be so much fun. Tara, are you in mindfulness mode today? I absolutely am. I start every day out in a mindfulness mode. That's great. Tara Cousineau. She's a PhD and she is a clinical psychologist. She's a meditation teacher and she's a well being researcher as well as being a social entrepreneur. Tara founded bodymojo.com, that's B O D I M O J O.com, and she develops digital wellness tools for youth. She's affiliated with the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion at Cambridge Health Alliance in Somerville, Maryland. She's a mindfulness trainer and chief science officer at WHIL, a digital mindfulness company, and she serves as a scientific advisor to kindness.org. Now, she has an upcoming book called The Kindness Cure, which I can highly recommend. It's a peerless book on kindness that exceeds any existing work on the subject. So Tara, let's talk about mindfulness. What does mindfulness mean to you? Sure. Well, I have my own little twist on mindfulness. I call it kindfulness. And really, for me, my definition is being aware of the present moment with heart. I think that I've come around to the whole trajectory of mindfulness because I've been in it for about 25 years, really from a place of compassion. And, and my lens is let's really make compassion in the foreground rather than in the background. And sometimes it's a little bit in reverse. So that's why I prefer to use the term kindfulness so that we're always remembering that we are sort of just connecting to the present moment with an open heart. I think I think kindfulness is such a great term that you've coined and you've done so much research on kindness. Let's start at the beginning. What does kindness truly mean? Well, for me it's actually incredibly simple and doesn't require any research. My definition of kindness is love in action. And really um for me it's th- when I look at it is that we have to actually put in the effort. 
And one of the things that I've come up against, I guess, over the years is that we have, and I'm speaking in general terms, but in our culture, this sort of um, suspicion about kindness. We don't particularly trust people who might be kind. They're, it's seen as weak and feminine. And I've really wanted to kind of turn that on its head and kind of bring back, in a way, an acknowledgement of the golden rule, which exists across all religions and all cultures in one form or another for a reason. We belong to one another. And so kindness is really about, well, putting love in action. And I'm talking about the big term of love, you know, being connected to humanity, more sort of what's within us and how we're connected. So without operationalizing kindness in a research term, um, in a very simple way, it's it's love in action. Well, some things get in the way of that. And I'm thinking about fear. I'm thinking about guilt. Some of these, some of these kinds of things. Let's start by talking about fear. How can we make sure fear doesn't block us from our kindness? Well, it's a really good question. It's actually one of the premises in my book. And I, um, you know, for me, like the real barrier, and as I observe the world, and I've been a clinical psychologist, so I've talked to many people for many, many years, and um, often see that there's a crisis of kindness, whether that's kindness towards the self or kindness environments or family situations and that sort of thing. And, and fear does get in the way. So does uncertainty. So does mistrust. And um so does being really busy and being overexposed to negativity, whether that's in your community or in the news or in your social media feeds. So in a way, things have gotten amplified in terms of what we're exposed to. And what I've sort of observed is that people have the intention to be kind, and many people are inherently kind. It is our innate blueprint to be kind. We have, all have a compassionate instinct. But our stressful lies really get in the way. And that ignites really a fear response, which, as you know, when you speak about, you know, in your other interviews, is that sort of fight or flight response. But I've kind of termed it this, um, because I genuinely believe that people have a kind nature and want to do good and will help out when they have the opportunity. But fear does get in the way. And I call it this, um, I, I call it being under a spell, self-protective empathy, lethargy, essentially. And it creeps up, you know, when we're kind of ooh, consumed with ourselves, too busy, tired, afraid, overworked, overwhelmed, you know, distracted. And um, it's a barrier. And what about politics and the media? Now, you live in the United States. I live in Canada. You have a very different political climate. But does that get in the way of our level of kindness? Well, it does to the extent to what, how much attention we are giving it. Like we kind of feed the beast in a lot of ways. And yes, yeah, certainly where I live, so I live in um, Massachusetts, which is one of the most liberal states um, in the United States. And, um, and I'm glad that I do, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm here for a reason. But it is very distressing. Um, there is sort of not a day that I wake up now, actually, I purposely do not listen to the news when I wake up in the morning. I actually don't even listen to the news until the end of the day because I really don't want to have that sort of negative imprint. I don't want sort of my fight or flight, um, you know, response being triggered by the news. 
we have to actually ask ourselves, what are we paying attention to? If the first thing that we do is we look at our cell phones or we turn on the news, and it's often not very good, um, we're kind of doing it to ourselves in a lot of ways. We have choices about what we want to attend to. We truly do. What can our children teach us about kindness? I know you have at least one child. Have you learned about kindness from yours? Well, I have, yes, I have two daughters. They're teenagers now. Actually, one's a young adult. Um, and, oh my gosh, you know, raising kids is so hard and it's, it's so complicated. And in my lifetime, um, my first child was born in 1997. It was the year the first Harry Potter book came out. Um, but shortly thereafter, we started having cell phones. And by the time that they were in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, um, every kid needed to have actually a cell phone at that point. And then about a couple years later, it became the smartphone. And that's really kind of changed, um, I think, the landscape of child raising in particular. But in terms of the question about kindness, my kids have taught me so much about kindness. And even in my book, I actually um, talk about my daughters here and there because there's a couple of vignettes that really highlighted the, just, I guess the comparison between kindness and meanness or cruelty because we sort of have a cool to be cruel culture. And um, so yeah, my kids have taught me a lot about kindness because I've had to grapple with it. And I've had to grapple with, um, kids bullying each other, um, our political climate bullying, violence, um, one tragic event in our community <laughs> after another. So kids respond in a very pure way and they ask very simple questions. And when my, oh gosh, I think it was my younger daughter when she was about 12, it was a terrible year because we had here in the United States, we had the Boston Marathon bombing, which is, you know, happened eight miles from where we live. We had the um, Batman movie shooting in Aurora, Colorado. And then we had the um, Sandy Hook school shooting in um, uh, Newtown, Connecticut, which is 10 minutes away from where I grew up. And I have friends who raised their children there. And she just came home saying, Mom, what? What is happening? Why do people do this? And, um, and, and I said, I know, honey, it is, it feels like it's a really unsafe place, right? But it's not, you know, these are rare events and they're horrible events, but they get magnified and then they get magnified. I mean, my daughter knew about the Boston bombing before I did because she saw it on her social media feed. And so we sometimes just have to, um, really call on our mindfulness skills in those moments. Um, we can't help what happens out in the world, but we can certainly influence our response in the moment. And that children really call on you as, as a parent to um, be very measured in how we respond to things and not feed into the fear and the uncertainty. That's so true. Now, your book stands head and shoulders above so many other books about happiness, kindness, that kind of thing. Can you tell us what makes your book stand apart? Well, I think that um, for me, I wrote the book 
in a lot of ways for personal reasons. Actually, my older daughter had been beaten up. It was it's one of these bullying events, and I can go into that story a little bit more later. But I really came to sort of a come to Jesus moment where I was like, you know, what has happened? What's happened to kindness on every single level, you know, from, you know, our neighborhood to um, the world at large. And so I wanted to write a book on what do we know now about mindfulness? What do we know now about compassion? What does the science say? Because we need to practice this like we do any habit that we want to um, develop. And how can I explain in a very simple way the absolute critical nature of practicing kindness and compassion? Because we have to grow those sort of neural networks, if you will. We need to help evolve our ability to be empathic. And now we have the science to back it up. It's like science is backing up ancient wisdom. And I just love that. But I don't necessarily feel that it gets translated out into the community or to the culture. So it's very kind of you to say that my book stands out. But I think that what I try to do is in like a real um, simple way, have ordinary stories of kindness not these altruistic kinds of things that seem relegated for, you know, the spiritual masters, but ordinary kinds of kindness and and use those stories as an entryway to say, oh, here is why this matters. You know, here's why taking a pause and doing mindfulness meditation actually really changes your brain. Here's why practicing kindness actually does have a contagious effect. It's not made up. You know, people say kindness is contagious. It is. And and now we know this through social network research. Um, So I was like, well, how do I explain this? How would I explain this to my mother or my neighbor or a school teacher or even a teenager why this matters so much? So I think that's that was my approach. It was it was just how do you translate the current science, which basically proves out what Jesus and Buddha and Mother Teresa and Gandhi said. (laughs) I love this. I love this, Tara, because that's exactly why I started my podcast, because, you know, the science is there. The science is proving about mindfulness and about meditation. It's already in the books, but it's not in the books of the mainstream world. And that's what your book does with your stories on a personal level. It's such an easy read and you read along and you're reading this story and it's like, yeah, I can relate to this. I, I have your book right here. And, and one of the things that I love is you have your 20 kind sight questions. I think oh, this, yeah. is, this is a good point about your book. And it starts out the first one is, what is one thing you can do today that will stretch my heart a bit wider? Tell us how you came up with these kind sight questions. Is there a story behind that? Well, I think, um, um, you know, there sort of is. It was it was kind of like, um, so I'm going to go back to my kids. So here's how, yes. how kids are teachers. And so we would, you know, we'd go on summer vacations to the coast and, you know, you play all the car, you know, the car games to kind of get through the ride. And so one of the, one of the games is 20 
questions. And I don't know if yes. you know this game, but it's basically, you I know, do. somebody thinks about something in their mind and you have to guess what it is, right? And so it's like, and then you go around in a circle saying, well, is it an object? Is it a place? Is it dead or alive? You know, and so <laughs> you just kind of keep, you know, digging deeper and deeper, right? And so I thought, well, what are 20 questions that we can ask um, that would help us dig deeper? Because I'm going to go back to the point that I made before is that kindness takes effort. It's not necessarily buying the cup of coffee for the person behind you or paying for the pull, the toll booth on the parkway. That's easy. It doesn't, I mean, that takes, that's like a 10 second thought, you know, and it's a nice thing to do and you get to see the person wave and you kind of feel good and then it goes away. So the 20 questions were really about digging deeper and going a little bit deeper and hopefully that those are the kinds of questions that will help you get to, well, what does it mean to have a meaningful life? Like what really matters? So that's where that really came from, those 20 yeah. questions. Oh, so powerful, so powerful. And, you know, sometimes our ego gets in the way, of course, and you've already kind of alluded to this. And, you know, we get so busy with life, busy with so many things. It's like, oh, that didn't go right. This didn't go right. And all of a sudden, we're taking it out on those around us, even though we don't realize we are. And like you say, it takes work. How can we check ourselves so that we don't take our anger and our ego out on others? Well, this is why I wrote the book. That's really it's it's really kind of a a book that starts with the personal, right? It's it's going from the inside out, and so after um, you know, I talk to sort of about why I wrote the book and why kindness takes effort, and then I go into sort of like the caring brain because I actually think that that research is so important, and I'd like to actually in a moment get to this whole question of empathy, um, but we start with ourselves, and we start with learning how to take a pause, you know, that sometimes is called the sacred pause. And when I think about the cheapest anti-anxiety out there, it is your own breath. And it's utilizing that breath for a matter of minutes, enough to calm down that surface tension that happens so that you have a little bit of space to say, oh, I need to take a time out. I need to remove myself from this situation. I need to put myself in another person's shoes. What's another perspective here? And so the breath is so powerful in so many ways because it kind of hits at all angles. It, it it engages our parasympathetic nervous system, our calm and connect system. It engages sort of the... It allows us to access the prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain where we can make decisions. Um, and it also allows us to actually see the other person in front of us. Right. So, yes. so, so taking the breath, I just think is so powerful and it's so basic and all mindfulness approaches basically start with that basic essential element. True. And yet it's something we carry around with us all the time and it's not taught. It's true. You know? Yeah. It is not taught, uh, not in the mainstream world. And so let's talk about empathy then. Right. So I think, um, I tried to distill, I thought to myself, what do I think is the most important new science out there that could be translated to help people understand why practicing kindness um, and um, compassion, and those are slightly different also, why that's so important. And so I think actually, you know, 
the fMRI, um, the imaging, the brain imaging machines, you know, they, they started to really um, take a hold in a lot of social science research around 15 years ago. Honestly, I wish I'd gone to graduate school about 10 years later. I probably would have become a neuroscientist. I'm such a fan. Um, but what they're finding in the brain is that the the neural so we have these neural networks that are just kind of like really kind of like busy maps in our brain and and the and networks um, basically sort of activate or deactivate. So we used to think of the brain in sort of parts, you know, and there are parts of the brain. But when we think of sort of um, neurophysiology, they're really networks, right? And the empathy network, the, you know, if we define empathy sort of the common definition is putting ourselves in another person's shoes. That means we're able to kind of resonate with their feelings. We can kind of see um, from a cognitive perspective what they might be experiencing. Well, that the empathy network maps over the same network that experiences physical pain. So if you think about the skin, knee, or cutting your finger with a knife or, you know, being injured, our first reaction to pain is repulsion. You know, we, 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 we tighten up, we, we go inward, we, we retract, we protect ourselves. And so this has made so much sense to me. And I think to, to many others in the field, like, yes, you know, there is this aspect of empathy um, where we can get overwhelmed, right? And that is because we are feeling another person's pain or another person's distress, and it affects us physiologically as well. So when we think of um, compassion fatigue, um, which is actually really empathy fatigue or empathic distress, it's because we have been sort of overcome with the the emotions and the sensations and the thoughts that are associated, you know, with with pain. So, mindfulness and kindfulness and compassion techniques actually activate a different network in the brain. So the compassion network in the brain actually helps to bridge that initial sort of alarm bell pain response to the the centers of your brain that are sort of in the front, the executive functions. And it creates a bridge so that you get enough distance from that other person's pain or the distressing situation, if you, you know, gosh, watch the news and, you know, look at the Syrian refugee crisis, for instance, right? I mean, we really kind of like, it's an, it pinches on us. But taking those breaths, practicing compassion skills, loving kindness meditation, directing warm wishes towards other people, being able to soothe yourself saying, yes, this is hard, that activates the compassion network. They're two different networks. I just think this is amazing. So you can tell I get very excited about it because it explains so much. It explains why people fall under this spell, this sort of like self-protective empathy lethargy that I call it. It's like we go inward when we are overwhelmed. So when we understand that that's how our brains work, I think it's very empowering. It is empowering. And I can tell how how passionate you are about this topic as you talk about it, because it's true. It makes a difference in your life if you can understand how this works. Now, I want to ask you also about meditation in your life. What does it look like for you, Tara? Do you meditate every day? I try to meditate every day. And when I don't meditate, I take mindful moments instead. So um, I was introduced actually to mindfulness meditation 
through the work of John Kabat-Zinn, who really started the whole mindfulness movement, at least in the medical space. And so um, I was this sort of renegade graduate student. I went to a very psychoanalytic um, clinical psychology program and very Freudian, you know, very sort of... um, yeah, well, you know what I mean. It was just yeah. very analytically oriented. And I was starting to get really interested into health psychology. And I had seen John Kabat-Zinn interviewed by Bill Moyers on a program he did for PBS years ago called Healing in the Mind. And I said, that's it. I want to I want to understand how this works. And um, and it sort of it's just sort of launched the the whole question for me about using mindfulness actually in, in psychology and in, in sort of health psychology. So I, um, but I'm not a Buddhist. I don't practice Buddhism. Um, I, but, you know, mindfulness has sort of was introduced to the West through that philosophy and, and it's, it's incredibly beautiful. And actually Buddhist psychology is incredibly beautiful. Um, as is actually psychoanalytic psychology and narrative psychology. I mean, there's so many, there's so many paths, right? But so I cultivated, I would say about six years ago in earnest, um, starting a morning ritual. And partly I have to confess and to any parent who listens to this, I kind of had to wait for my kids to, um, not take so much of my, my attention. Sure. <laughs> you know, you know, it's sort of like when they kind of got launched into middle school and kind of were on their own, all of a sudden I had some freed up time. Yes. And so I could then really cultivate a practice. And so my ritual is actually very simple. It's anywhere between 25 and maybe 40 minutes um, in the morning after the kids are off to the school where I actually... Um, uh, behind me, I have a chair. Um, you can see it on video, but um, for right. listeners to imagine that I have um, I have a cozy chair. It's what I sit into. It's where I also listen to patients or clients who come to see me. And um, I light a candle. I have a um, little bureau that um, is sort of my sort of sacred corner, I would say. And it has um, some prayers on it, and I've got the statues of, you know, the Virgin Mary and Kuan Yin and, you know, the goddess Tara and the Buddha and, you know, healing stones, uh, you know, and a candle. And it just becomes my little sacred circle. And so I think I call my practice more of a centering practice because um, it has these different components. I'll say a prayer. Um, I will do a loving kindness meditation. I will sit down and I journal um, for about 10 minutes um, every single day. And my journaling is in the form of um, writing a letter, actually, um, you know, um, and just put, I put down my thoughts and it helps, it helps to clear my mind. And then I sit. Um, and I will use something like the Insight Timer app, which has a sort of a gong, and I'll set it for 10, 15, or 20 minutes um, with the beginning or the end, um, and that's how I'll end, end my practice. And I find that when I don't do it, it really affects me. <laughs> like, and, and it really, you know, I just get really, I just get really frazzled. I get caught under that spell that I talked about. And so, um, the wonderful thing about having a ritual and a practice is that, you know, when you fall off the wagon, so to speak, you can always come back to it. It's there for you. 
Yes, you can. And I love hearing the details of your ritual and how it includes it includes journaling and it includes that first part and then insight timer and how that helps you with the gong sounds. This is just great to hear this, Tara. I want to ask you about bullying. I've worked in bullying for some time. Have you ever been bullied or were you ever on the other end of it where mindfulness would have made a difference? Do you have a story for us, Tara? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I wrote the book based on a bullying situation, but it was, um, it, it was a situation with my daughter. Actually, it was, um, the incident was the night before senior year, senior year of high school. So exciting. All the kids are congregating, you know, in the woods where they're not supposed to, but that's where they do. Um, and, um, and it was early in the evening, you know, like nine o'clock at night or something. And my daughter is, is leaving the gathering and, um, another girl just comes out from behind a tree and attacks my daughter like and, and like a girl on girl fight. And, and, and she, my daughter, Sophie had no idea where this is, where this is coming from. And, um, and then, you know, then the guys got called in and ended up being one of these, you know, sort of weird teenage, you know, scenes. And um, my daughter left the scene. And here's the thing. She didn't tell me until a day later, um, partly because I had actually been in my office the night before. I didn't see her come home. And then the next day, um, she came into to my home office and she said, Mom, I have something to tell you. And I was like, oh, my God. She crashed the car. She's pregnant. I mean, I don't know. Like, I was like, what is a teenager going to tell you, you know? And, um, and she sat down and she said, you know, I know I wasn't supposed to be at the woods. That's where all the kids were just to kind of celebrate. And, um, she named, um, a former friend really from middle school who had physically attacked her. And I was just like, oh my God, are you okay? And then she showed me like literally the cat scratches, you know, the fingernail scratches and the whole thing. And the, and, um, she had a picture that, um, her friend took of her bloody nose. I said, I don't want to see the picture because I know too much about how these things get imprinted in your brain. I said, I believe you. Are you okay? Do you feel safe? Um, the next day was actually going to be the first day of school. Do you feel that you're going to be okay in the hallways or in the cafeteria? And she said, yeah. And I said, you know, um, why do you think this happened? And she goes, you know what? I really don't know. I think it might just be an old grudge. And and then she started going into this like compassion mode. And I'm like looking at her shaking my head because I, I literally was going to go knock on the parents' door like less than a mile away and really ream the mother out. Like I was really mad. I was really sure. upset about it. And, um, and my daughter was saying, well, she has a really hard life. You know, just, I said well, honey, I'm sorry you were assaulted and that's not okay, but you know what? Um, Let's just think about it. So I literally called on every ounce of mindfulness training that I had had not to go into this reactive tiger mom mode that I might have five or six years ago. Like I might've just gotten in my car, said, this is not okay, knocked on the door, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. Mm Mm-hmm. But my daughter actually really showed, um, and I don't know where she got this from, because I feel like she's got a wisdom and an inner strength that I didn't necessarily have at her age, where she could see sort of the situation from multiple angles. And she also felt um, in this case that, you know, talking to the school could blow it up and make it worse. And I just said, well, let's just put that on hold because I'm the parent here in this situation. And it's ultimately a parent's responsibility to do something. Mm-hmm. 
So the next part B of that story is that I waited a week and then I made a meeting with the school. And I just said, I know that the woods is the satellite off-campus site for these kids and that as long as they're not on on the property there's really nothing you can do about it which personally I think is lame but that's how school policies work um and I just said here's my concern that um that this is going to escalate that this could cause a rift um that both girls are going to be in a sort of um uh interpersonal war um, and that both of them could have an unpleasant year because what happened immediately was like a lot of the girls and guys sided with my daughter mm. and that was, you know, and that was just going to incense the situation I think, sure. more. And so, um, I was then impressed actually with the school's, um, approach to it. So they had been trained in some bully prevention techniques and, um, knowing that like an apology from the bully actually never really works. No. No. Um, and so they did sort of more like reconnaissance. <laughs> yes. I would say like, you know, in the hallways and they were sort of able to kind of, um, there was another fight that had happened in the woods uh, with the boys that night too. I and mean, this is like a real problem in a lot of communities. And I live in eight miles south of Boston, but it's sort of, you know, it's, it's suburbs and kids will congregate wherever they will, whether it's the docks, the fields, the woods, the quarry, you know, this is, this sure. is perpetual. And, um, and I feel like schools actually really need to um, be aware of it and do something more about it. So, but that's, that's what kind of in, in, in informed the book was that very incident, because I just had one of those um, WTF moments where I just mm-hmm. said, what happened to kindness? Like, where is it? This is how people cope now, is that they go right to fighting and attacking. I mean, I felt like it was a metaphor, actually, for our yeah. culture. <laughs> um, you know, that we just have a lot of bully pulpits, and it's just kind of trickled down into a lot of areas. So, And kudos to you for taking action and writing the book and helping others with this, something that you've gone through and you can help others with it. And, and you've truly done that with the book. Now, Tara, I want to move forward as we get closer to the end of the interview and ask you five quick answer questions. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced the mindfulness in your life? I would probably say um, the psychologist Tara Brock, who wrote um, a book called, actually, Radical Acceptance was her first book, and then True Refuge. And I think the reason why I like her work so much is that open-heartedness and compassion is primary in, in her approach. So I would say that she is an influence, if that's what you're talking about in terms of of expert influencers. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Tara? Well, um, if we had longer and I told you what a um, uh, temper tantrum kid I was (laughs) as a child, um, I had a very chaotic household. Um, I think that when I came to yoga and mindfulness in my 20s, that it absolutely changed my emotional life, how I react in the world and my relationships fundamentally changed them. And we've talked about this, so I'm sure you can sum it up in a sentence or two, but tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Well, breathing is 
essential, you know, um, a definition of breath is spirit of life. And I feel that that's very true. And so for me, the breath is spiritual nurturing, I think. Um, and so taking that sacred pause, which is actually what Tara Brock calls it. That's why I like it so much. And, and, and I say it myself is that essentially we are living, breathing human beings and we're all connected to each other by the very virtue that we live and breathe in the world. So let's really um, attend, you know, tend to, to our breath. Excellent. And I'm curious, well, of course, The Kindness Cure, your book, I highly recommend. It's excellent. Do you have any other books you recommend related to mindfulness? Um, yes. You know, I think that one of the big influencers for me was the psychologist Christopher Germer, who is also in Massachusetts, wrote a book a number of years ago called The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion. And he also brings in a lot of the science of the day. Um, and um, I, I, it was actually really, in a way, life-changing. And the second book is actually, it's, it's just had its 10th anniversary. It's called um, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And so that's had a little bit of resurgence this year. And so I, I reread it again. I'm like, oh, I remember why I liked this so much, right? It's really how to understand your your sort of busy, talkative, judgmental mind. So I find that that book is, um, he's got a sense of humor too. So that is that was a big influence for me. Yes, I liked his book very much as well. And uh, the final question, can you share an app? And you've already mentioned Insight Timer. I don't know if that's it, but can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? Well, so I spend a lot of time in health technology, so I actually have a couple of recommendations, if you don't mind. I would appreciate um, that. Yeah, so I think, um, and also I just wrote a paper, so it's on my mind, um, so I use these as case examples. But I think for children, um, there's, a, there's an app called Mind Yeti. And it's, it's really sweet, actually. It's kind of like in the sort of like superhero vein of things. And it, and it helps kids um, sort of attend to, um, you know, their breathing in very fun ways. So I think that for parents, they have a free version, and then I think there might be a paid subscription. So that's one that I think that it's fun to try because it's really geared developmentally towards younger kids. And then I spend a lot of time with teenagers, as you can imagine. Um, and there's another app called... Um, uh, if I get the order right, stop, breathe, and think. And um, that, again, right, it's really about stopping, you know, pausing, breathing, and then being able to sort of reframe it. And um, and it actually stylistically is kind of cool. So I think that um, it could appeal to sort of adolescent sort of, you know, sentiment, more or less. But for grown-ups, I think, gosh, there's so many apps. There's 1,300 mindfulness apps, 1,300. So I have not tried any of them. I mean, it may be five, you know, as a whole thing. So you have to kind of go and experiment. And I think the wonderful thing about the app stores is that you can go and try things out. Um, so I think, you know, one, um, you know, there's um, Budify and Calm, you know, um, and then the Insight Timer I like because um, it, it has the version of just sitting with yourself, right? There's yes. no guide, there's no guided imagery or, you know, it's no music. It's just like, here's the bell, you know, you start, and you stop. Right, <laughs> and so exactly. in a way, like the insight timer is kind of like um, sort of crafting that discipline um, to, le to learn how to sit with yourself in silence. So, Yeah, I like insight timer as well. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure talking with you, Tara. How can we connect with you and learn more about you and, and what you're doing to help others? 
Oh, sure. Well, people can come to my website, uh, tarakuzno.com. It's not easy to spell, but it's T-A-R-A. And then it's like a cousin with an E-A-U. So um, at dot com, and I have a book page there. And um, and for anyone who actually wants, uh, you know, to, um, to to buy the book, they certainly can on any online store. And then if you come back to my website, I've got some um, meditation downloads and affirmations, um, you know, um, sort of a little extra content for people. So, um, yeah, come to my webpage and, and you'll see more. You'll see a kindness manifesto, too. Oh, great. Yeah, Mindful Tribe. I'm going to reiterate this. I'm going to repeat it. It's tarakuzino.com, T-A-R-A-C-O-U-S-I-N, just like cousin, with E-A-U on the end of it, tarakuzino.com. Check it out. You'll become even more empowered to be kind and to understand kindness. Tara, thank you so much for spending the time with us today to understand kindness and bring more into our lives. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this topic. My pleasure. Well, get yourself out there and order that book. The Kindness Cure. And you don't even have to get out there. You can order it online, of course, The Kindness Cure by Tara Cousineau, and I highly recommend it. So, Tara, thank you again for joining us. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or episode number into the search bar. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen. Maybe it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever. Hit subscribe and share. Subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Subscribe and share, share, share. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.